Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, the Lord uses His creation to teach us many things about Himself. Attributes like His greatness, His glory, even His faithfulness. Mm -hmm. And in today's program, you want to explore that concept. Yes, Scott. God's revelation of Himself in nature is something the human heart and mind innately perceives. The fact is confirmed by how commonly the recognition of something or someone bigger than oneself is recognized in a person's response to some grand display in nature, like the night sky or the expanse of a mountain range or even a towering canopy of trees. And an even more important confirmation of that fact is the statements in God's Word describing the irrepressible thoughts in the human mind when observing God's handiwork. For example, in Romans 1. That is definitely one such statement. Go ahead and read what you're referring to, Scott. All right. I'll read Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. Good. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made mm -hmm. so that they are without excuse. So this is describing an example of man's innate understanding that there's a creator. And in this case, he does not welcome that reality. Nope. However, we also read of just the opposite response to God's revelation of himself in nature in David's Psalm 8. I'll read Psalm 8, verses 3 to 5. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. In David's case, when he recognizes the creator behind the creation, he is awed by God's power and control, and is not only humbled, but grateful, as he realizes this great creator cares about him and has even blessed him. So, these examples we've touched on, Romans 1 and Psalm 8, are just two of many recorded in God's Word, and we'll look at others. However, I also want to consider statements made by people from non-biblical sources that also demonstrate the power of God's revelation of Himself through His creation. You mean like a statement a scientist or modern writer made? Exactly. One of my favorite examples is by a famous scientist who was an avowed atheist until he was shown evidence indicating the universe was expanding. I'm pretty sure I know who you're referring to. Okay, who is it, Scott? Albert Einstein. You're right. Yay! Now listen to this quote. Everyone who is seriously interested in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe— a spirit vastly superior to man, and one in the face of which we with our modest powers must feel humble. Now, Einstein was obviously thinking from the perspective of a scientist, looking at data collected from instruments, not just the impressions realized from seeing the universe with the naked eye. But the principle is still revealed in his statement. The spirit behind the creation is great, and we are not. Mm. And here's another quote of Einstein making the same point. He said, The scientist is possessed by the sense of universal causation. 
His religious feeling takes the form of a rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law, which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. Wow. If David had been a scientist, he may have said the same thing. <laughs> Indeed. But as much as Einstein was awed by God's intelligence, others react in a completely opposite fashion. I don't know who Catherine Giordano is, but she has a presence on the Internet when looking for information like what we're considering here. And in contrast to Einstein's response to the finely tuned laws of nature, this is her conclusion. She asks a question. Did an intelligent designer fine-tune the universe to make it just right for human life? No, just the opposite. Evolution has fine-tuned life to fit the universe. Dr. Scripture, that kind of description of evolution borders on intentionality. Mm -hmm. Yet, if you call an evolutionist on it, they insist evolution occurs totally by random chance. And yet, Scott, that explanation goes against everything we observe. And frankly, it goes against simple common sense. That idea that it's all just random chance. An evolutionist must virtually ignore everything they've observed over a lifetime and convince themselves it's all just an accident. Listen to this quote by Sir Fred Hoyle. He was an astrophysicist well-known for his theorizing on the Big Bang. He said this, A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. And Francis Crick, very famous co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, put it very plainly, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved. Hmm. <laughs> well, to a statement like Crick's, Abraham Lincoln would ponder like this. He said, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how he could look up into the heavens and say there is no God. So rather than fighting God's clear testimony, Lincoln embraced it. That's right. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And so you've brought us back to what God's word says about the creator's revelation of himself through what he created. And so the first thing I want to look at from God's word is how he uses his creative work to express his faithfulness. We find this in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, and I'm going to start reading at verse 35. It says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. <laughs> now notice, he's claiming that he did it, and you can't change any of those <laughs> things that he put in place back there on day four. Then he goes on to say, Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. 
What's the point he's making? They will never cease from being a nation, and it's based on his creative work. It's based on his faithfulness. And how does he prove it? Just try and change the course of the stars, and uh, then maybe he'll think about changing his mind about Israel. And a very common means by which God demonstrates his greatness and his power is through creation. And what I want to look at is an extensive passage in the book of Job. Because here we see that the Lord speaks for three whole chapters. And what he's doing is he's talking about how his power is revealed through what he created. So I trust everyone knows at least the basic story of Job. He was a great man who suffered terribly later in life. Yet he responded with the famous words, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But over time, and much conversation with his friends, he began to say things about the Lord that he would regret. That sounds familiar. (laughs) Talking too much always gets you in trouble. (laughs) Here are some examples. In Job 13, 3, he says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God. Who's going to win that argument? (laughs) Job 27, verse 2. As God lives, who has taken away my right? And the Almighty, who has embittered my soul, for as long as life is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, my lips will certainly not speak unjustly, nor will my tongue mutter deceit. Here he's talking about using this tongue and his lips that he knows God created for him, and he's going to use them to argue with God. And then these final words that he gives before Elihu and then the Lord himself corrects him are in Job 31. I'm going to read verses 35 to 37. Job says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. Wow. Yeah, so he's talking about walking up to the throne of God and making God answer him. Yeah, that is a dramatic change in attitude, contrasting what he said at the beginning of a suffering to what we just read. That's a huge change, but that's part of this whole narrative in the book of Job. You see the change in Job's attitude as he talks and talks and talks. So that change in attitude, or perhaps, Scott, it was the Lord rooting out of Job some latent pride. Mm. That is what the Lord responds to in Job chapters 38 through 41. And he does this by doing what? The Almighty describes one creative act after another, and in essence asks Job, can you do that? (laughs) Right. The point being, look at my power, Job. How can you stand there and question me or even threaten to uh, make me do anything? So given that, let's read some of what the Almighty says. Starting in Job chapter 38, we could say that God is saying, okay, Job, you know so much, answer me. Job 38.1, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So we see that the Lord is claiming that he laid the foundations of the earth. He goes on to talk about measuring it out carefully and laying its cornerstone. Then in verse 8, he goes on to make other claims. Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. Verse 10, and I placed boundaries on it and I set bolt and doors. Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? 
<laughs> and cause the dawn to know its place? Uh, no, sir. No. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 13, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Verse 18, have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Then verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Then he moves on to things that comparatively would seem much more simple, like how the animals behave. Chapter 39, verse 19, do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? In verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? So notice what the Lord is doing. He is citing all of these acts of his in creation. And what is it doing? It's proving his greatness. And none of these things can be denied from the sense that we all look at these things and are amazed at the beauty, at the precision, at the glory, at the power of these things. And in the true reflection of the human heart, we understand it's a great creator behind all these things. But God has given us the ability to respond however we wish. Do you respond like Francis Crick, or do you respond like David, who said, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.